and it is significant change that the government is embarking on and it is going to impact every organisation in Australia. New technology will often impact and influence a shift in the way that you work and so we need yep. to invest time, effort and energy in, in process evolution. You want to pick the tech that's right for the business that solves the problem as opposed to pick the partner, which over time may not be the right partner for you for a number of reasons. Welcome to Add to Cart, Australia's leading e-commerce podcast that express delivers all you need to know in the fast-moving world of online retail. Here's your host, Bushy. Welcome to another episode of Add to Cart. I'm Bushy and I'm joining you from the land of the Turrbal people, otherwise known as Brisbane, Australia. On Add to Cart, we welcome everyone to share and listen to e-commerce stories. The more diverse, the better. I want to especially welcome the traditional owners and the original storytellers of the land that we are on, our Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander listeners, to join us in our e-commerce conversations and our community. Have you ever really thought about how businesses come up with their business names? Inspiration can come from a range of places. Some brands use wordplay. Durlux is a combination of the words durable and luxury. It actually had nothing to do with a dog. Others align themselves with a hero. The brand Milo actually comes from the legendary ancient Greek athlete Milo of Croton, who was famous for his superhuman strength and smashing five unstirred teaspoons at once. And for some, it's just made up. The Rolex founders wanted a name that could be pronounced in all languages, especially rich ones. My guest today chose an animal for her company name, one that's adaptable and tenacious like the business she wanted to grow. Teresa Sperty is the founder and director of advisory firm Arctic Fox. That's Arctic with a K, A-R-K-T-I-C. They are specialists in digital e-commerce and capability development. Teresa's background leading digital transformation at retailers like Coles and Officeworks led her to start the business that works with clients now, such as Bunnings, Bega, and Carpet Court. With Teresa's background, there were so many topics that we could have dived into, but I thought given the time of year and some of the chats that I've had recently with retailers who are outgrowing their current tech limitations, this would be the perfect opportunity to talk about how to select and implement new technology, especially from someone who's done it on such a large scale. In this chat, Teresa shares her simple but effective framework for business casing. She tells us how to get the best out of your technology partners, the do's and don'ts. And she also talks through the government changes to the Privacy Act and the impacts that will have on e-commerce businesses. You really don't want to miss that. That was a surprise for me. Now, if you want to take this further, Teresa is offering listeners a great deal on her digital marketing and data masterclass. Stay tuned for these details after our chat. So let's get into it. Thanks to our partner, Shopify Plus. Here's our conversation with Teresa Sperty, founder and director at Arctic Fox. Teresa, welcome to Add to Cart. So pleased to be here, Nathan. So good to be here. Now, we had a little pre-conversation around what we might get into today, and we're going to talk a lot about selecting and implementing technology because you have an amazing background and experience in that area. But first, I want to give our listeners a little bit 
of a background into you and what you're doing. Fantastic. Tell us about your journey so far, obviously working with some amazing retailers sure. and how you got to be where you are today. So I spent 20 years of my career client site, not just in retail, but in a number of different industries, which great gave me a great diversity of experience. But in 2012, I started working at Coles in the liquor division, leading data, loyalty, e-commerce, and a raft of other things. So, and when you look back kind of 10 years ago, a lot has changed since then in, in all of those spaces. And then I went on to work at Officeworks for a number of years, leading personalization, evolution of experience for consumers and digital transformation. And, and again, a, a really amazing experience, which has kind of led me to where I am now with Arctic Fox, where we're a, an e-commerce and digital advisory, uh, working with kind of mid-scale to large-scale organisations in all problems centering in and around digital and e-commerce. And, and so we work with a number of retailers and, and CPG and FMCG brands, uh, helping them take advantage of the opportunities that exist in the space. Yeah, great. Take us back to 2012 at Coles. What kind of problems were you solving then? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. So when I was at Coles in 2012 and 2013, we were in the throes of launching new e-commerce sites. Uh So some of the brands at that point didn't have e-commerce sites in place, Uh, particularly those brands like Liquorland that were more kind of the type of purchase that you make in and around your trip to the supermarket. Yes, convenience kind of purchase. That's right. That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Glad I could help. (laughs) Yeah, we were launching a number of e-commerce sites back then. We were rebooting our loyalty proposition for vintage sellers at the time. And really, I mean, my time at Coles was about driving education within the organisation about the importance of digital and the role that it played to influence the path to purchase, which is interesting when you look at where we are today, because still today, many retailers are still getting their heads around that kind of the role that digital plays to influence in-store. Yes. You must look back now and obviously Coles plus Officeworks are leading the way. Often in you get these larger organisations that are laggards in mm-hmm. e-commerce and digital, but I don't think it's the case here in Australia in that some of the, the larger organisations like Coles and Officeworks are actually paving the way mm. in digital. You must be proud of where they are today. Oh, absolutely. And I think Officeworks is a really interesting one. When I joined that organisation back in 2014, I would say they were far more progressed than most organisations in the e-commerce space and in their, in terms of their mindset and thinking around the delivery of that omni-channel experience for customer. And so it's interesting to continue to see their journey and, and watch their journey from afar. But I think as a result of their core customer base, in part being business with quite significant repurchase behaviour, the role of e-commerce was well understood pretty early on within that organisation. So, you know, and they've just gone from strength to strength in terms of their overall omni-channel experience and proposition since. And I have to ask you, do you think that growth or that focus on e-commerce at an earlier stage was driven by customer demand or they saw the business opportunity? I think a bit of both. I think absolutely you need to meet the customer where they are. And I think Officeworks was really good at understanding where the customer was and and what their needs were. 
But equally, I think we had a leadership group and team at that point that was very clear on the role that e-commerce played within the broader organisation and it was a critical part of their strategy. And there was real alignment around the fact that e-commerce influenced in-store and in-store actually influenced e-commerce. So, you know, I would say 10, 15 years ago, we saw a number of retailers where online was almost competing with in-store and vice versa. I think that still happens today. Yeah, absolutely right. But maybe not as prevalent as it was, I would say, 10, 12 Mm. years ago where e-commerce was new and there was really big concern around does that just cannibalise what what we are doing in-store? And I think COVID's kind of changed and shifted some some of that mentality. But the leadership group there very early on understood that and therefore the way that they set up the business to operate meant that in-store wasn't complete, competing with online and vice versa. And, and so that goes down to, you know, how you structure P&Ls and all of those types of things to ensure that the network and e-commerce are working together and not effectively competing with one another. That's a big core limitation to get over pretty quickly, right? If, you, if it's not competition but it's enhancing both channels, I could imagine that frees up the space to get so much more done quickly. Absolutely. I think it's what I often talk to brands about now and and even back then is about, well, at the end of the day, we don't care where the customer shops Mm. so long as they're shopping with us. And so if we get it right, we're able to grow the pie for ourselves rather than we are internally competing with ourselves. And, And like you say, I think even in today's environment, there is still a little bit of a lack of understanding for some brands about what good looks like and the role and investment that e-commerce plays in growing the overall business's bottom line. So change track a little bit. <laughs> Arctic Fox. Why Arctic Fox? Where's the name come why from? The fox? <laughs> yeah, why the fox? <laughs> <laughs> a really good question. So it's the only name I came up with for the business. Yeah. And when I started socializing it with people, they loved it. So if you look at the Arctic Fox and it's the background of that creature, um, it embodies change. And so the Arctic fox changes its exterior depending on the season in order mm-hmm. to camouflage itself to protect itself within its environment. And so in the spring, it's kind of brown, its coat goes brown. In the winter, its coat is white in order to camouflage against the snow and the ice. And it's also quite a tenacious little creature. And so Arctic Fox's origins is really built on helping brands embrace change and the changing market and continuous evolution. And I really felt that I wanted a brand that embodied those values. And I started researching, found the Arctic Fox and went, that sounds perfect. And then realized that the way that you spell Arctic Fox was already taken as a URL. So we had to slightly change how we spelled Arctic Fox as a brand. So that is how we landed with Arctic Fox. So it's A-R-K-T-I-C Fox for anyone Googling along as we're speaking. That's right. Perfect. I had a similar story when I started 12 High, which was my first consultancy. I said to my wife, I was like, got to get this consultancy started. Oh, better think of a name. And you'd think the marketing guy would normally take his time. I was like, 
we're going to dinner, we're going to have a few margaritas, and we're going to come up with a name yeah. in one dinner. And yeah. that's where I came up with 12 High because it was about the Wright brothers and it took them 12 seconds to get the first plane off the ground that they could actually call flight. And I was like, you know, story around. Let's- Sometimes the first idea is the best idea. Yeah. And maybe yeah. margaritas are the answer to branding. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, that is not marketing advice at all. All right, let's get into selecting and implementing technology in e-commerce businesses because I know that there's going to be a lot of listeners, especially early in the year where we are thinking about what their tech stack is yeah. going to be in 2024 and maybe putting some plans in place that they can present for budgets coming up to financial year. And a lot of changes happening in the world of technology at the moment. Mm. Can you share, if you were focusing on any area mm. at the moment, especially around e-commerce from a tech stack perspective, yep. where are you spending most of your time at the moment? I think it depends on the type of organisation you are. So if I think about e-commerce, am I a retailer? Am I a CPG brand? Do I have few SKUs? Do I have many SKUs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that definitely impacts the type of technology that you're going to be procuring. So if I'm working for an FMCG or a CPG brand and I have a number of SKUs, product information management technology is critical, yeah. as yeah. is kind of damn technology, right, particularly if you're diversifying across different channels. And for those who don't know, damn technology? Digital asset management. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's your photos, your videos, everything that goes along that enhances. It's the content that typically doesn't necessarily sit at at a skew level. So it might be more lifestyle type imagery. It might be more of that kind of top of funnel brand based content that you're generating. Yeah. So those types of platforms become really critical to be able to manage through channels and ensure consistency in the way that you deliver product information to third-party platforms. Yep. Whereas, you know, if I'm in in a retailer, I'm probably thinking a lot about first-party data collection and I'm probably thinking about some of the changes that are coming on the privacy front mm. and what does that mean in terms of how I manage data within our organisation to ensure that I deliver privacy-protected experiences and we are compliant but are still able to deliver the types of experiences that we want to and need to from an e-commerce point of view. Sorry, I'm interrupting this conversation because I have a message for any sales folk listening who are in e-commerce services or tech. What if I told you that you could meet Australian e-commerce decision makers in their car, follow them to the gym, even join some of them in the bathroom. Well, if you sponsor Add to Cart, you might be able to do that legally. We have sponsorships available for 2024 right now. Come join our industry-leading partners such as Shopify, Impact.com, Convert Digital, and Farsight in helping to bring amazing conversations, events, and more to our e-commerce community in 2024. Email me directly at nathan at addicart.com.au for the full 2024 prospectus. And in the meantime, don't get any ideas about bathrooms. So lots of changes in that area over the last couple of years, right? Lots of changes. I think, you know, if you look back, what I think everyone needs to understand, particularly for those who, who aren't kind of really close to what is happening is that the government has been spending years on 
undertaking a series of reviews and has released a series of discussion papers over time around changes within the privacy space and specifically changes to the Australian Privacy Act. So this isn't new. This has been on the horizon for a long time. And I think over the previous three years, increasingly over that time, we've been able to gain far more clarity over where the government is potentially going with these changes. And it is materially significant change that that the government is embarking on. And it is going to impact every organisation in Australia, particularly if they remove the current $3 million and above clause, which means that any organisation under $3 million today doesn't have to comply with the Privacy Act. But that is like... I didn't realise that. Yeah, that, that is the case today. But as part of the recommendations, so for those listening in that don't understand this space, there was in this year 116 recommendations made to make changes to the Privacy Act, so 116 recommended changes. The government has already accepted 38 of those and there's a further 68 of those that they have said that that they have agreed to in principle, which means that change will happen on all of those fronts. It's just what that change looks like still needs further consultation. So when we think about that kind of today that the Privacy Act applies to organisations operating uh, where they generate $3 million and above, that is one of the 116 recommendations that have been put forward is to remove that that threshold and, and basically make all organisations accountable within Australia for privacy compliance, whether you, you turn over $100,000 right through to billions of dollars. And is that generating $3 million in revenue or income? Yeah, okay. $3 million in revenue, yeah. It doesn't take much for e-commerce businesses to get to that level, right? No, it does not, no. Do you feel the recommendations of what you've seen so far, is it taking Australia towards the GDPR kind of level of privacy? Absolutely. So, and in some cases, it's probably more stringent than GDPR. And then in other cases, it's less stringent than GDPR. And it is a little bit hard to tell because, you know, there is still those 68 recommendations that have been agreed to in principle, but what they look like in terms of what will be legislated, there's still kind of significant grey in all of that. But, you know, if we look at if we look at where GDPR is at and, you know, the rights of the consumer... I think Australia is moving forward in leaps and bounds in terms of providing the rights to consumers that consumers in the EU have. And I'm talking about things like the right to be able to ask for their data to be erased, Mm -hmm. uh, their personal data, but also anonymised data. You know, those types of changes will see us come more into line with the EU and GDPR. Uh, Australia is also enacting the ability for a consumer to be able to directly sue a brand for loss or serious injury as a result of a privacy breach. And so you look at that and you see how far Australia is going to move in terms of giving consumers rights and control. And that's going to be a significant shift for organisations of all sizes in this, this country. And I can't imagine there's any retailers listening to this going, yes, I'm really excited for these changes. <laughs> I don't think there's many brands that are sitting there going outside of retail and inside. I'm super excited about privacy. Unless 
you hold a privacy role within organisations and you've been trying to shift the agenda, maybe those individuals are quite happy to hear that some of these changes are coming in order to get executives more focused on the issue. Got a job for life. Well done. You definitely have a job (laughs) for a while, that is for sure, yeah. So from a technology point of view, if we have retailers going, oh, this sounds like a lot to manage and a lot Mm. to be responsible for, Mm. from a tech perspective, where are you seeing the biggest changes being made in tech stacks to prepare Mm. to have this information available and transparent? It's an interesting one. I would say that, yes, there are brands that are starting to evolve and consider what they need to do on the tech front, but probably many brands are not where they need to be. I think this is where we're seeing a lot of demand and interest in platforms like CDPs. And I I think it's really important to be clear that CDPs may not be the silver bullet around privacy management, but that ability to aggregate data, unify data around a single identifier is going to be really important if the government enables consumers to have the right to erase because the ability to do that in an environment where your data is sitting in disparate places is going to be really challenging. And actually, there was a report that came out, I think it was from Salesforce, I think it was 12 or so months ago, that suggested that today it costs organisations about two, two and a half thousand dollars to delete one or erase one record of a consumer because of data sitting in so many disparate places. So brands are really thinking about how do we unify data in order to help manage privacy compliant considerations to how do we provide more control and transparency around what is collected and how it is leveraged is an important consideration. And as the major platforms continue to provide consumers with the ability to decide how and when their data is used, that expectation is going to flow through to brands. Mm. And so again, that is then going to be in part reliant on technology, right? How do we give consumers that flexibility to choose how and when their data is used? And then what does that mean in in terms of how data in the back end is is organised and managed to fulfil those commitments that you make to consumers? Okay. So if we take a bit of a zoom out now, that was a really fascinating dive into privacy, which I didn't think we would get into, but um, (laughs) some great stats in there and, you know, alarm bells going off in the back of my head for a few things there, which is always great when you're just coming back from holiday. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about, obviously, you've had such great experience with digital transformation in large organisations. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit if we can. Can you talk me through what your best technology transformation experience has been so far? Sure. Okay. Well, there's a few. So, and that's probably a good thing, right? You know, often you hear about technology transformations or digital transformations that go bad. I've actually been very fortunate to have a couple of good ones through my career, but it's fair to say I've been doing it for a while. So there's some bad ones in there as well. I would probably say my best technology transformation experience was at Officeworks. Mm-hmm. So at the time we were driving transformation in a way in the way that we engage the customer along the life cycle. So it's really strong focus on personalization and driving relevancy, better leveraging the data that we have at our disposal. We had, you know, vast data assets that weren't being effectively utilized. Um, So it was a really exciting time, really exciting role. But again, you're breaking a lot of new ground within the organization. 
And so that transformation for us involved implementation of multiple platforms, data platforms, marketing automation platforms. And so I think the reason why I say it's probably one of my best experiences of transformation is for a few reasons. The first is that there was really strong alignment between marketing and and IT. Mm -hmm. We were partnering with, I would say, a progressive IT team that were hungry to drive evolution in our go-to-market approach. And there was a lot of respect on both sides in that relationship and the value we were all bringing to the table. And so that's when it works well, when there's that alignment there and mutual respect and belief about where you're going. Did one team own the project? So we led it. We led, and pretty early on when I joined Officeworks, I inherited a decision around we've made a decision on a new marketing automation platform. Can you just finalize the contract? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. All right. So then I started asking some questions around how we came to that decision. And I found very quickly, it wasn't really based on anything. There was no clear business-led strategy around the platform we'd chosen and the why and what it is we were trying to achieve. We'd made a technology decision because we already had similar platforms in the stack. And so pretty quickly, I made a decision that we were going to step back and we were going to start by defining what is it that we'll try to solve as an organisation and therefore determine what platform was right for us from a features functionality point of view. And so that put the brakes on for a couple of months, but it allowed us to accelerate over time because we had chosen the right platform. Mm. So... We led it from a business point of view, but pretty early on, yeah. once we started to cast the vision, I invested a lot of time, A, understanding what were the business needs that I could anchor any business case to mm-hmm. and who could potentially champion the project from the business side alongside of me. And not necessarily was that with my own direct line manager, yeah. but also I spent a lot of time with IT yeah. pretty yeah. early on, understanding their processes what it would take to kind of get a project like this off the ground, what was the appetite, what were some of the challenges. And so I think from day one, because they were engaged from day one, I think we were able to drive this really strong alignment as opposed to marketing's off making some decisions and then they engage IT at a later date once they want to start implementing the platform. And so I think that created a really good foundation for the project and the the group of individuals working on it which enabled us to garner the buy-in, garner the investment and accelerate implementation. You know, our vendors were so surprised at how quickly we were able to go from procurement to implementation and it was because of some of the groundwork that we laid from the start. What was the reaction when you said we need to put a brakes on this process and uh, (laughs) reevaluate? Well, you know, it was uh, the vendor wasn't happy, that was for sure. Um, (laughs) I think... You know, whether it was from a, particularly from a team point of view, there probably wasn't complete satisfaction about the decision I had made. But equally, there was strong understanding of, you know, we sat down and talked about it with the team. There was strong understanding around the rationale as to why I'd done it and that we can't just select platforms on the basis of other platforms we already have in the stack from that vendor. That doesn't make it the right solution for us and nor did it necessarily integrate well. So so I think whilst the team was a little bit disappointed, there was an understanding and pretty quickly we pivoted to running a kind of RFP 
starting to look at best of breed platforms. And, and I think the team was then genuinely excited around the vision and where we were planning to go and the platforms we were procuring and the investment that we'd secured. So I don't think it was a a completely bad experience because of what came next. Just a bit of a journey to take people on. That's right. Kind of one step back to be able to move forward in the right way. When you're trying to put together the case for benefits on such a large project that impacts so much of the business and goes across a number of systems, I can imagine that there are some really functional benefits, new features, new capabilities that you'll be able to cost and project outcomes on but there will also be some intangible things such as roadmaps that you'll be buying into or team efficiencies how do you balance the two when making a case Mm. for such a large sum of money so when i think about business casing i like to think about it in three buckets from a what is the benefits realization and i think this is a useful framework for people to think about it so one does it drive revenue and profit Mm -hmm. Right, that's one bucket. Second bucket is, does it drive cost efficiency? It's going to potentially reduce cost for the business. And then the third is, does it deliver experience gains mm-hmm. that the organisation is is looking to drive? So, and what equally I think about is, if you look at the business strategy for an organisation, how can I anchor my buckets around where the organisation is trying to go? right, in order to have that link and alignment. Typically, from a technology point of view, I would usually be looking to drive some sort of case around revenue Mm -hmm. as opposed to cost saving because let's be serious, as much as we talk about automation and the ability to potentially reduce headcount, you're more likely to be reducing future headcount than current headcount that exists within your department, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. If we didn't have this technology, we would probably need more people over time to personalise experience, et cetera, et cetera. But it's hard to bank future savings on headcount because you're not currently paying that from a business point of view. Yeah. So that's predominantly how I think about it in terms of buckets. I love those buckets. You're like Scott Pape of e-commerce technology selection. Oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I don't even get the reference. His whole thing is like financial buckets for personal savings. Oh, actually, I've listened to Scott Pape. Yes, of course. Yes, now you've connected the dots. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. I'm like, I'll just take that and we'll just move on and pretend like I didn't. No, just go, Nathan. That was a shit joke. No, no, no. I like it. So I think the reality is in this environment, whether you're a marketer or a digital person, whether you're in a scaling business or a large organization, you have to be commercial. Yeah. And the reality is, you're asking for investment that could be spent elsewhere. Mm. And so you have to build a really strong case of why would we put it here versus over there. Yeah. And when you start thinking about the fact that I'm competing for other funds as opposed to this is my project and I just need the funding, you start to realise that I need to bring my best game here and it's not just about the vision but it's about how can I convince the organisation not put money over there and to give it to me. Um, to do what I need to do. And that means that if you've got a finance person in your organisation, you need to get pretty cosy with them Mm. and you need to understand how the organisation makes those financial investment decisions, right? Some organisations will look at the net present value 
of that investment. Others will look at internal rate of return and an, a, a host of other metrics, right? And each organisation will be different in terms of what it looks at and the benchmarks it looks at. But if you, from the get-go, understand what are those benchmarks and what is it going to be assessed on the basis of, and you do that through engagement with finance, you'll have a much easier path to get it through the organisation, a much easier path. It's the calm before the storm. And unlike George Clooney in The Perfect Storm, spoiler alert, Shopify wants retailers to come out not just alive, but thriving, because it's a big deal, especially here in Australia. Last year, Australian merchants ranked third globally in Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales volume. What an opportunity. So if you want to maximize your share of the peak sales this year, use this time before the storm to download and read Shopify's peak season playbook. They've got 10 experts, including me, to share their tips on how to maximize sales at this time. So put on your life jacket and get your hands on Shopify's free peak season playbook. Download it at shopify.com forward slash plus forward slash guides forward slash peak sales season 2023 or just follow the links in the episode show notes from the device you are on. Land ahoy. So in that process of working with finance, I'm sure you always uncover new costs when implementing new technology that you may not think of straight away Mm. because it does impact a larger part of the organization rather than the ones and zeros of implementing the tech. What do you think are the most common overlooked costs of technology implementation that many businesses miss? So I think that one is pretty easy. It's people-related costs, hands down. Um, Businesses and brands think that the tech will solve their problems when, in fact, the degree to which the technology is adopted will be dependent on the people and the ability for those people to be able to leverage the technology effectively. You know, it's not uncommon to see organisations buying a tech platform and, oh, we'll, we'll buy some training and it's one session and it's an extra $1,500 or whatever. The reality is, particularly if you have to shift capability of a number of people, that is a journey. It's not something that's going to be learnt through one training. And so I think organisations really need to think about the people-related costs and the cost to evolve process. So that's resource, focus, energy, et cetera, because the reality is is that new technology will often impact and influence a shift in the way that you work. And so we need to invest time, effort and energy in, in process evolution. Um, And then the third cost I think that's always overlooked is the ongoing operational cost of managing the platform, whether that be investment in enhancements and, you know, taking your MVP to something that moves you towards your future vision. There's cost involved in that. And that goes well beyond your initial implementation cost and your ongoing subscription costs. So, and, and I think the difficulty is in some organisations, the CapEx discussion is different to the OpEx discussion. They're, they're had separately. And so this is where organisations can often get caught out because, yeah, I've got that CapEx through, but I didn't get the OpEx approved or I didn't think about the OpEx. And therefore, once the project's finished, I have two choices. I either have to go and get another 
tranche of investment signed off from a capex point of view or have to try and carve budget away from something else that I'm doing and beg, borrow and steal to get the money to do what I need to do. And neither is ideal, right, because you want this to be a kind of BAU core way of working and to do that, you need that consistent investment. You don't want this start, stop, start, stop approach to investment. Yeah. And for those who CapEx, OpEx might be new to, CapEx is capital investment, usually put aside throughout the organization, has all sorts of tax implications. OpEx is the operational budget, which you use on an annual throughout the year. Can you tell us also while we're on that, and that some of our partners might actually hate this question. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. What are your tips on getting the best deals out of technology partners, mm. both from a technology and maybe an implementation perspective? Okay, so great question on tips because I think for those who are newer to technology, they can sometimes fall into making quick decisions. So the first I would say is never fall for the kind of catch cry of sign up by this date and you get this discount for this product because most tech vendors will do that. If you sign up by the end of the month, I can give you this price. But after that time, I can't give you that price. At the end of the day, you've got to run your race. You've got to make the decision about the platform that is right for your organisation. And that means you need to invest the time in due diligence. So I would say, you know, that deal is always still on the table. (laughs) (laughs) Some may argue that's not the case, but I've always seen that you can still get a great deal after that that time frame. So work on your time frames, don't work on theirs. Don't let the vendor know that you have it in the bag. Keep them guessing. You know, once the vendor knows that they have it in the bag, they're less likely potentially to negotiate. Um, I think the third one that may come as a surprise to you, Nathan, may not, and I'm a, I talk a lot about this in market because I feel like it's a bit of an unspoken practice that the industry isn't talking about enough is ask not only your vendor, if you have an implementation provider, ask what the kickback is that the implementation provider is getting from you investing in that technology. Mm. Because what we are seeing in market is that there are a lot of deals in place, direct or indirect deals, where implementation partners benefit if you choose a platform, which means that They may push you down a path that may not be right for your business, but it's right for their business. And so what do I mean by direct and indirect? An indirect deal would be that the implementation partner gets money from the vendor to invest in training and those types of things. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're credits, but, you know, they're pooled credits. So you don't, as an individual brand, know that that, agency is still benefiting from something and then direct is of course direct kickback x percent of the subscription over time or a one-off payment so Mm -hmm. I think that does two things one is potentially gives you a sense of whether or not there's an inflated cost somewhere because somebody's got to pay an implementation partner for you taking on the product but it also helps you to have clarity over what's in it for everyone else. Mm. So, and as I said, I don't think it's something that's talked enough about in the industry, but it's something that we really pride ourselves on as a provider because when we come in and help brands make decisions around MarTech, 
we do so without, we don't get kickbacks from anyone. And we intentionally design the organization around that. It's a really good tip. Really good tip. Yeah. Yeah. In an ideal world, when you're choosing MarTech, do you have a preference for choosing technology first, choosing partner first, choosing both at the same time? Yeah. I personally believe you need to pick the tech first. Mm-hmm. So yes, if you need a partner to help you, absolutely find someone, but try and find somebody that's agnostic, that's not going to push you down a certain path from a technology point of view. Because, you know, for some people, processes to choose technology and identifying requirements and all that kind of stuff doesn't come naturally. The reason I say pick the tech first is that usually, even if implementation partners say they're agnostic, there are 11,000 MarTech platforms in the MarTech ecosystem. There is no way that providers can be truly agnostic. They will have core experience across a series of platforms. So, I think it's always best to work out which platform do you want to be on and then determine the partner because over time you might shift away from that partner anyway. You might in-house your capability. You know what I mean? Mm. And so you want to pick the tech that's right for the business that solves the problem as opposed to pick the partner, which over time may not be the right partner for you for a number of reasons. Teresa, so much that you've talked about today. We could have kept going, could have picked apart a lot yeah. of those points, but things that stood out for me, things like alignment between marketing, tech, finance to make sure successful projects, making sure you know what's in it for everyone along the way yeah. and making sure we account for the people involvement and the people cost and investment throughout all of this. Can I ask you to sum up, if we've got retailers mm. listening to this who have some big projects on the table for 2024 and they know they're going to be spending a lot of time and effort implementing, what would you say are the non-negotiables when you are implementing a successful project? Non-negotiables, wow. So I would say that I think having a level of project governance is important. I know, boring, boring, but... (laughs) You know, particularly if if you're investing at a large scale, and I'm not talking just enterprises investing at a large scale, a scale-up might be investing at a large scale based on the size of their business, right? If you're investing at a a large scale for your size of organisation, you need to get that project right. You need to get that implementation right. And I think project, whether you put a project governance committee in place or or whatever other checks and balances you put in place to manage governance, I think that's really important to increase your chances of success because we know so many technology transformations fail mm-hmm. and technology implementations fail. So I believe that that's absolutely key. I think you have to have a cross-functional team that all understand and buy into the vision and direction. Mm-hmm. It's not about marketing or digital, understanding the direction or e-commerce and just kind of providing direction to other people. You want everyone in that project team from developers through to marketing, even if it has a significant implication on areas like customer service, whatever, you want them to understand the why and the direction because when they understand the why and the direction, they're far more likely to add value to the process than just do what is being asked of them to do. Yeah, great. Everyone needs to understand the why. Yeah, brilliant. 
Because even if they're not directly involved, they will be impacted some in some point, way or right? another along. There's the, nothing the, worse than yep. somebody saying, we have to do this because X, Y, and Z said we have to do it. That, that helps no yes. one. No, exactly. <laughs> Amazing tips. Thank you, Teresa. What's next for yourself and team at Arctic Fox? Big projects, big plans for 2024? We've got a few things cooking on the learning and development front. As an organisation, we obviously provide consulting and advisory support for brands, but we're big believers of building capability in this market as the market changes. So so we do a lot in the kind of learning and development front as well. And so there's a few things coming in that space that I can't share yet. But I would encourage anyone from the e-commerce community and retail community to sign up to our monthly updates on our website to keep abreast of what some of those offerings are. Yeah. Brilliant. Arctic Fox, A-R-K-T-I-C-F-O-X dot com dot A-U? No, A-R-K-T-I-C-F-O-X dot I-O. Dot I-O. Oh, look at you. You're out there leading the way. (laughs) 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 Teresa, thank you so much for joining us on Add to Cart. That was a brilliant overview of selecting and implementing technologies, but also where we got to at the start around data privacy. So it's going to be a fascinating year to see where all that lands by the end of the year. Fantastic. Great. Thanks, Teresa. Thank you for having me on the show. Now, I hope that conversation around the changes to the Privacy Act didn't freak you out too much. Obviously not because you're still here, but it is definitely something to have high on your radar. If you want to dive into that deeper with Teresa and the team, she has offered Addicart listeners $100 off the digital marketing and data masterclass that Arctic Fox offers. You can book that over at arcticfox.io forward slash digital marketing masterclass and use the code addicart or one word addicart to get $100 off. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. All right, there were so many lessons from that conversation. Here are the three that resonated for me. Don't be afraid to put the brakes on. If something's not right, it's worth reevaluating, even if it means a short-term delay. I've had to do this a few times. It's never comfortable, but it's always worth it. Oftentimes in projects, we don't want to stop because it will impact a timeline that we'll then have to explain. We'll lose momentum. Confidence will drop. Funding will get pulled. The project will get cancelled. Disaster. But as you heard from Teresa, sometimes to get the best outcomes... You might need to stop and redirect focus. It's not always an easy or popular decision, but don't ignore it as an option. Number two, get cozy with your finance team. You just got a little bit creeped out there, didn't you? But seriously, when selecting tech, bring them in early and often. Ask them to help you create the business case, not just approve it. Most of your battles and benefits will be won with your finance team as part of the team. And number three, Teresa's framework for business casing. Number one, does it drive revenue and profit? Number two, does it drive cost efficiency? Number three, does it deliver experience gains that the organization is looking to drive? These are three very important questions. If you can't answer at least one convincingly, you don't have a business case. Thanks for joining us today on Add to Cart. To listen to all our e-commerce conversations, now in the hundreds, you can head on over to addtocart.com.au. There, you can also join up to our free private Slack community to share e-commerce ideas, tips, and questions with other listeners. 
You can also subscribe to the Add to Cart weekly newsletter and browse some of the video highlights from our chats. There is a lot there. That's addtocart.com.au. And if I can ask you one thing before you go, if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with a friend or a colleague who could benefit or leave us a review. It really makes a difference. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep those customers adding to cart. Listener.